If you get back to the Bolivian, please an audio book. Wagula was a new solitary confinement section to replace La Mulala, although there was nothing new about it, and there was nothing lucky at all about being sent there either. That place was hell on earth. It was like they had run out of funds halfway through building it. The walls were dirty and unpainted. The taps didn't work. The toilets were permanently blocked. There were light sockets, but no globes. There were beds, but no mattresses or blankets. My new life was made up of four elements. Goodness, darkness, silence and boredom. The daily routine is simple enough to describe. Twenty hours in the cell and four hours out. Inside the cell was small, cold and dark. The walls and floor were made of cement and there were no windows and no light. Over than the small amount that came under the door or through the small observation hatch in the door, which I could prop open when the guards weren't around. The bed was just a few planks of wood that I inserted into holes in the wall at night and dismantled during the day to make more space. There were six of us in a cell block together. Charlie Cocto, Chapaco, Ramaro, Chino, Samela, my Brazilian coffee friend, and me, and the guards let us out together for two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon. Although we were banned from talking at all times, When out of the cell, I had to watch my back. Those guys were tough. La Gula prison was supposed to be where they sent people as a punishment for specific misdemeanors. In practice, however, they used it to house the hard and violent cases that they couldn't control or didn't know what to do with. It was a last step before Chancho Coro. Most of them didn't care about anything, not even themselves. Ramero was in for punching a guard in the face. Chino spent most of his time in solitary confinement for fighting. Chagotto and Chapaco were in there for stabbing an inmate to death with a screwdriver. Those two had nothing left to lose. They were already in prison for 30 years for another murder and they probably wouldn't live that long anyway. Besides, if they got the second conviction of 30 years for the stabbing, there was a loophole in the law that would allow them to serve it concurrently with the first sentence. So it made no difference to when they would get out and Sameh, I don't know what he was in for this time, but it was usually something to do with drugs or fighting. The only reason they didn't send him to Chanchikoro was because he was always threatening to expose the police involved in the car theft ring. During those four hours, we couldn't go to the toilet. Harvey could shower move around in the small exercise pen or eat some food. If there was any, the meal system in La Grulla was the same as it was in the rest of the prison. It was a bucket of watered-down soup was sent from the prison kitchen twice a day to all the sections. That was all you got and if you didn't like it, you had to feed yourself. In La Grula, there was a small kitchen area next to the bathrooms with running water and the cooker. 
but it was of no use to us since we couldn't get to the shops. Sometimes the guards forgot to send us our soup, and we went hungrier unless the inmates from the neighboring section of pasta sent us their leftovers. Which was never enough for six men to survive anyway. The conditions in solitary confinement got to me quickly. I was constantly hungry and had lost a lot of weight. After one week I had diarrhea and a chest infection. A few days later I started pissing blood because I had a urinary tract infection. But there was something worse than the physical conditions and the sickness. The mental torture that went along with it. The guards and Rogrilla were fucking bastards. Real fucking bastards. And they wanted to make an example of us because we were the first group to go through. So that everyone would hear about it and be afraid of being sent there. They did a good job of it too. They called us dogs. They hit us like dogs. And after a while we started to believe that we were even dogs. The gods were our masters. Yes. Masters. Dependent on them for everything. Food, water, toilet breaks, even company. They made us beg for everything. And if you misbehave, you will be locked in your cell without food or water. After several days, severe thirst and starvation, there is nothing that even the toughest man in the world won't do for something to eat, no matter how degrading. When Samir was being punished one time, the guards made him lick their boots while they pissed on him. Afterwards, they threw him scrapes of food on the dirty floor and he thanked them for it. Our communication with the rest of the world was cut off completely. We weren't allowed visitors. We weren't allowed phone calls and we couldn't send a message to anyone in the main prison or even call for a doctor if we were sick. Communication with each other was forbidden and communication with the guards was limited to nodding and shaking our heads. We even weren't even allowed to look at them. When they yelled at us, we had to keep our heads bowed. If they asked you a question and you answered it, they would strike you with a wooden button for speaking. But if you didn't answer, you would be beaten for being cocky. There was no point in fighting back. The guards could do whatever they wanted and no one would ever know because La Grilla was separated from the main prison. One of the other tricks they used to control us was punishing everyone when one person disobeyed the rules which built up tension among the prisoners and stopped us from uniting against them. Usually the punished involved depriving us of yard time or food or both. When that happened I wouldn't see another human being or eat a thing for days on end. The only noises I would hear were the ones I made myself. My footsteps pacing up and down the cell or my own voice when I talked or hummed to myself. We had buckets for shitting in, but I kept mine filled with drinking water for emergencies. Instead, I shut in the corner of my cell on a piece of newspaper and wrapped it up tightly to stop the smell getting out. It never worked though. On top of all this, I was constantly worried about my future. I replayed the events in the Valikos room over and over in my mind until I thought I was going crazy. The police had no evidence against me and in any normal country I wouldn't have been concerned. But things were different in Bolivia.
They could easily change a few details in order to make me look guilty. Ricardo's joke was no longer funny. As he would say, What could they do to you if they catch you with drugs in prison? There was an answer. Keep your wind there for a lot longer. On the scale of cocaine offenses, 200 grams wasn't much, but the amounts wasn't that important. Dealing in jail carried a heavy sentence no matter what since it was a second defense. I didn't know what the exact penalty was, but I guess the judges could add anything between 5 and 15 years to my sentence if the case went to court. And the worst thing about it was I was actually innocent this time. I have heard that for some people. Knowing that they're innocent is the only thing that keeps them going while in prison. For me, it was the opposite. It made it worse. It made me realize that being innocent or guilty was not relevant. They could do whatever they wanted with you, and you were completely powerless to stop them. I hadn't forgotten Abrigon either. What he was going through in the Chanchocolo must have been far worse. I had no way of helping him from where I was. There was no chance of getting any money to him. I couldn't operate my shop or restaurant. I couldn't run the Thomas the Talkout business. I couldn't even sell any of my possessions or mortgage my room. Seen as I was in this shit all of a prison now. And worse still, I didn't have any way of telling him what happened to me. For all he knew, I might have been part of the plot to send him to maximum security in order to steal his money. I often thought of Yashida. I had a lot of time to think about our relationship. I kept remembering one crazy night in particular. When we were back in the good prison, when we were both drunk and high, we both said some crazy things to each other. We decided that we were going to get a little house together somewhere. It didn't matter where. Maybe we would have to rent at first, but we would both work hard in order to save up. I was going to quit drug trafficking. I didn't care what I had to do to get by. Maybe we could stay in Bolivia where everything was cheaper and I could teach the Bolivians English. I would clean toilets if I fucking had to. Anything to be with her. We made love all night and smoked weed and laughed between times. I think I even proposed to her. We never mentioned that conversation again, but I remembered it and I'm sure that she did too. We were crazy that night and the things we said to each other were crazy, but they were true at the time. Part of me still wanted them to be true, but they couldn't be. Not if I was locked up in this kind of prison. I wondered which country Yashida was in now and what she was doing. I realized how stupid I had been driving her away like I did. If she had still been in La Paz still, I knew that she would have saved me. Or even if she had known where I was now, I felt that someone somehow made me stronger. She could have thought about me from the other side of the world, but there was no way that she could have known. No one on the outside knew where the fuck I was. I could have died and no one would have known. Nighttime was the most painful. The nights were cold. Colder than I ever fucking imagined. It was difficult sleeping on the hard wooden planks. But there was no choice. The concrete floor was colder. Without blankets I couldn't stop shivering and thinking about all these problems. 
I knew there was nothing I could do while I was locked up. So I tried not to think about them. But it was impossible. I couldn't get away from my own thoughts. Not even for a minute. Being stuck in solitary confinement was like being a prisoner in your own fucking head. In the dead cold of night, I became convinced that I was going to die before morning. I knew that I had to get out of there. I would go crazy otherwise. Julian eventually managed to get past the Ragrilla guards, claiming that he had an obligation as a delegate to check on the prisoners' welfare. I was so relieved when he arrived. He was my main hope of getting out of there, of proving my innocence. He said, How are you holding up, Thomas? Lifting the flat and poking his arm through the observation hatch to shake my hand and slip me a stack of coins he had taped together for bribing the guards with. I said, I'm okay. How's Aragon? Does he know that I'm fucking stuck in here? Julian said, he hasn't called. He continued saying, Someone spotted his woman in Cochabamba. According to Julian, there was rumors going around that Raquel was dressing nicely and spending up big. It was what I had suspected, but they didn't make it any easier when I heard. Can't you send him something? We're trying to hide this. I said, Julian, I need you to get me out of here. I need you to speak to the fucking governor and go crazy. Julian persuaded the guards to let me call the administration office. But the governor wasn't there. Not that time or even the next. Or the time after that. He was always in a meeting or away from his desk, probably jerking off somewhere, I don't fucking know. I knew that Julian couldn't keep coming every day just to help me make the phone call. So on the fourth occasion, I told the governor's secretary to give him a message that I was going to ring the media. The government took my call immediately. I said over the phone, Governor, I'm innocent, can't you help me get out? I had nothing to do with this. Getting straight to the point, he did too. The governor said, No Thomas, I believe you. What is out of my hands? There has to be an investigation. I said, when? I don't know. I said, but I am innocent. The governor kept repeating that he had nothing to do with this type of disciplinary matter and that he couldn't interfere. I offered him money to get me out, but he claimed it was impossible. Too many people knew. Finally, I said I could call my embassy and the television stations unless I was given a chance to clear my name. He didn't like me threatening him like that, but I was desperate and it was the only weapon I had left. The governor said, I can't get to hell. Angry, he said. But I'll see what I can do about it. Speed up the investor. I'll speed up the investigation, man. Then he hung up on me. Two days later, I was summoned to the administration block to appear before a meeting of the prison discipline committee. This was the panel of prison officials that they put together to investigate and judge the eternal disciplinary matters. On it sat the governor, the prison psychologist, the mayor, or major, what the fuck, some administration staff on the prisoner's delegate. The meeting was relaxed and assuming that I had the governor and Julian on my side. I was confident that things would go my way. 
I was allowed to give evidence and put my case to the committee. I explained that I hadn't been inside the Valico's room at all, and that the police had found no money or drugs on me, and nothing in my room. When the committee asked what I had been doing there, I explained how the Villascos owed me money and how we had to fight over the debt. I said I had sent my shop employee, El General, to pick up the money before going myself. I said, so you see, it doesn't make sense for me being a drug deal with them and our fighting with them. Looking into the eyes of the committee members one by one, some of them nodded slightly. I was convincing them. That was the atmosphere in the room. I could feel it. I also allowed to call the witnesses and to tender evidence. El General came and backed up my account of being owed money and of how I had sent him to collect it. He had over the authorization note I had, written him, and as well as the loan contract with the Velasco's. But my best witness by far was Julian, who had actually been there when the police arrived. And since he was also a member of the committee, no one doubted that he was telling the truth. In fact, no one contradicted any of my arguments. I was certain that they were going to let me go on this spot. But the governor stood up and said that the committee needed to finish its investigation before it could arrive at a decision. Until it had done so, the prisoner was to remain in solitary confinement. He nodded coldly to the guards to escort me back to Lagula. I said, but governor, what more do you need to investigate? I yelled as they led me to the door. When we were in the public situations, the governor and I pretended that we did know each other, but that but that by that point, I was too angry to stop myself. I'm innocent! You know it! You said so your fucking self! After my outburst in the court, the governor came to see me personally in my solitary confinement cell. He apologized for not being able to help me. I offered him the money once more but he refused it i said to the governor more calmly i'm innocent you know i'm innocent the governor said little thomas put the middle all over us but i said well then they should get a chance to hear my version i no longer trusted the discipline committee's internal investigation once people knew the facts, there was no way I could be implicated, and the more people who knew, the better. The governor warned. That wouldn't help you or anyone else, Thomas. Adjusting the stars on his shoulders, he says, the governor said, The best thing you can do is keep quiet. Keep your fucking mouth shut, I promise to get you out of here as soon as things calm down. He offered me a deal. The minimum stretch in solitary was 90 days, but he could get me out a lot sooner. With no charges laid, provided I kept quiet. After I got out, he would destroy the file so that there would be no mark on my pleas and record. In the meantime, he would do whatever he could to make me stay more comfortable. He did mention what would happen if I refused his offer, but I knew that he could make things worse for me if he wanted to. I agreed reluctantly and he whistled for the guard to let him out. 
I still wasn't happy about it. So after he had shut the door, I called him through the flap. I said, they found the drugs in the Velasco's room, and I'm the one in punishment for it. This is bullshit. My complaint was effective, but not in the way I had intended. Rather than letting me out, there was two new additions to the Lagula's population that afternoon. Jose Luis and George Velasco. They were edge cells in the block, all in a row. The Velascos were placed together in the very end cell because the seventh cell was being used as a depositor for stalling contraband seized in the police raids in the Lepaz prison. As soon as I saw them being led in, I wanted to fucking kill them. But with the guards always watching us during yard time, I never got the chance to get my hands on them putas. I might have got two punches in before the guards jumped on me and transferred me to Chanchacarro. The time was would come soon, soon enough. Life was still horrible in solitary confinement. But it made more bearable once the governor had had a few words with the guards. I was permitted to bring some possessions across from my room at La Paz. I took everything I could carry from my previous room at La Paz. A mattress, blankets, light globe, as much money as I could beg from my neighbors there, and warm clothing for the other inmates except for them motherfucking Velasco's. On a subsequent trip, I even managed to sneak in a small heater on my television. Samir cut the cables and hooked them up to the wires that ran across the roof. Little by little, our pleasures were extended. The guards began to leave us to our own devices during the yard time, letting us talk quietly among ourselves. Some of them actually started speaking to us, and the cleverer ones would do us small favors such as taking us to our friends in the La Paz and bringing us money from there. Sometimes we allowed extra yard time, then Katie let visitors in to see us as well. Most importantly, I got one guard, Mario, to bring us food. He was reluctant at first. But once we became friends, he would do anything I asked. Mario was a new recruit had been transferred to San Pedro directly from the military training academy. He was still filled with ideas about honesty, integrity and serving the Bolivian Republic. He was only 19, but he looked younger because his face was covered with a severe... A-C-N-E. The other guards called him Pizza Boy behind his back. For the first few weeks, he did everything by the book. He was always shining his boots and his green trousers, had sharp creases down the front, and he wouldn't talk to me at all because the guards were under strict instructions not to speak to the prisoners. Finally, I got a response from him. By commenting on shiny his boots were, he said, The secret is the garden, he answered. You have to finish the job with the garden. Not many people know that. I offered him a few coins to bring me some food, but he refused them outright. Put that away. Please, I don't step bribes. I said, it's not a bribe. It's for your lunch. That usually eased their conscience. But it didn't work on Pizza Boy. He said, I'm not, hang I'm not hungry, thank you. Then marched off with his head held high. I tried everything, but the only thing Mario was interested in was his shoes and his girlfriend. Our conversations always started in the same way. 
How are you, Chica? Are those shoes are even shinier than yesterday? He would respond. She's not my Chica. She's my fiance. And they're not shoes, they're boots. There's a difference, you know. Bit by bit, I learned how to get through to him. He was disappointed that the Bolivian government could only afford to give each man one uniform which made it nearly impossible to have it washed, dried and ironed before work each day. He also confided in me his ambition to make sergeant one day or maybe even be an officer in order to get enough money to marry his sweetheart. Even though our conversations become longer, Pizza Boy continued to refuse my bribes. Luckily, however, he was a fast learner. Luckily for him, since on its cost risk being transferred to remote postings as soon as they were found out. Lucky for me because I was always starving in the Lagula. Gradually, I got him to accept small amounts of money. I would say I wanted to buy him some spe special boot polish or help him save for an extra uniform. Since I couldn't get to the shop, he would have to make the purchase himself, provided the money was for work and not for him. It was okay. Then, as the amounts increased, I began to put doubts in his mind about his girlfriend. I said to him, you need to start saving right away if you're going to get married. Or she might leave you. He said back. She will never do that. She's not like that. I said to him. Show me that photo again then, Pizza Boy. Pizza Boy pulled out a picture of his wallet for the tenth time and held it up proudly by the corner. The girlfriend was fucking ugly, but he never let me touch a photo in case I got my fingerprints on it. He said, She's a very, very special looking woman. A woman that needs a man to care for her. And if you can do it, there are a thousand men out there with money who win. How are you going to look after her? On my salary. The pay for private was less than $100 per month. We got started out on the wedding fund immediately. I would send him out into the main prison to buy proper food from the restaurants and bid it back to me in solitary confinement. I called this a self-delivery service. With the tips I had to pay him, it was expensive way to eat, but it was worth it. If I had more money, I would have sent Pizza Boy outside the prison to pick me up a takeaway, ham, pineapple, extra thick crust pizza. There was only one occasion that I ate better food than what Mario had brought me. Towards the end of the yard time one afternoon, two guards we had never seen before came into the section carrying a collapsible table. Nothing interesting happened in solitary, so we all stopped what we were doing instead. They left the table lying against the wall and we watched them leave. Then come back five minutes later, this time carrying a huge barrel of steaming soup and a tray filled with chicken pieces covered in mushroom sauce. The delicious smell of the food filled a small exercise earlier. Then they set up the table and started setting the places with knives, forks and paper napkins. It seemed there would be some kind of party. But what a strange place to have it. And who was it for? It certainly wasn't for us. They wouldn't waste such good foods on the inmates in solitary confinement. Besides, they never let us use the metal cutlery in case we sharpened it into weapons to stab each other. I said, what's happening? It's a new torture they invented for us, said Chino. 
who was always making jokes. You watch, they're going to eat it in front of us. Everyone was curious, but no one spoke for a while. We continued staring at them as they set up for the party. When they were done, somebody finally called out. Who's all that for? The guard said, For you lot, uh, go bring out your chairs, then you can all have some. Ignoring the order to get the chairs, the eight of us scrambled towards the table. The others ate standing up, greedily stuffing food into their mouths while I observed them. I was afraid that the food was poisoned or laced with a tranquilizer. I wanted to wait to see if any of them became sick. They were eating so quickly that I would that there'd be none left, so I drank a whole bowl of soup in one go, then grabbed two chicken legs in effort to catch up. Tranquilo, the guard said patting me on my shoulder. There's plenty more where that came from. After eating, we told to wash our clothes and clean the cell block thoroughly. If we did the good job, we would be given some extra yard time. Something strange was going on, but no one argued. Anything was better than being locked up back in the dungeons. Even cleaning, there was only one broom, but I took my time sweeping out my cell while the others waited their turn. I would make the pile of dust, then accidentally knock it everywhere in order to take longer, just to occupy my mind. Then I washed my clothes very slowly and took them out to dry in the exercise yard, slowly, piece by piece. On my way back into the pickup of clothes, I saw Chino leaning against the door to my cell. He was waiting for me and he looked nervous. Without saying anything, he looked up and down the corridor and then nodded his head towards my cell. He obviously had something important to tell me. Yo quick, puto! Quick, Ringo! Shutting the door behind us so that it didn't click loudly and stood with his back against it. I said, Why? What's up, man? After he had checked the corridor again through observation hatch, I asked him, Why are you so nervous? He said, Listen, Thomas, listen, Thomas. I got a message from you, from a powerful flame, but you didn't hear from me, okay? Oh. I said, Okay. He continued, continue. The plover. Jose Luis Velasco works for the F-E-L-C-N. I waited him to say more, but that was all he had to say. And what? I asked. I can't. Chino said. I can't say anything more to say. That's all I was told to say. Your friend just said to be careful about what you say about those two. Chino checked the corridor again and then slipped out of my cell. I didn't know what to make of it. I wasn't sure if the powerful friend was the governor or he was trying to warn me or something, or if the Velascos had put Chino up to it to scare me. I went out to the corridor again, but Chino was already gone. I continued with my washing. By the time I was on my last stop, the others had finished cleaning their cells and were back outside. They were sitting on the wooden benches leaning against the wall, with the afternoon sun streaming down on their faces. The guards were nowhere to be seen. I sat down next to Chino and lit the cigarette. I thought he might tell me something more, but from the way he was acting, we hadn't had the conversation at all. It was a beautiful afternoon in the Andean mountain range. We looked upward staring into the cloudless sky, trying to spot birds in La Paz. Bird spotting always helped pass the time. 
because hardly anyone lived at that altitude apart from the pigeons. Anyway, none of that I had seen from jail. I smoked cigarette after cigarette and squinted into the blueness until my eyes began to itch and my eyesight went blurry. I wasn't used to that amount of daylight, so I closed my eyes until the vision blotches went away. I stayed throughout the afternoon in that position, propped against the wall, eyelids shut, the warm of the sun on my face, thinking about absolutely fuck all. An hour later, the guards still hadn't returned us to ourselves. Then I said, what's going on? Chap, Chapcaro, Chapaco, who had been in and out the previous punish section more than any of the others. He said, I see we're getting a visit from the direct show, human nose, he yelled back. The others nodded, nodding, chuckled among themselves, but I didn't understand. My Spanish was good by then, but in all my years in prison I never heard that expression used once. I asked, what are the ratios and human, human knows? I asked Gino quietly, a little embarrassed not to have understood the joke. Gino said, I don't know how to explain it to you, my brother. So that everyone could hear, he looked, Chino looked up into the sky for inspiration and said, philosophically, They don't exist. That's just it. I tell you, directors and human knows are something that don't really exist, I say. This made others smirk again. What? Like an illusion? I asked. And the others laughed louder than the first time. He said, something like that, I say. Smiling wildly, really at me. Wildly, I mean, oh, wildly. I was still confused, but no one would explain. The others joined in, teasing me. So what you saying, gringo, ingles, ingles, what you saying? Chapaco asked in mock seriousness. You don't know what the Lecho Humaza <laughs> do you know? I said, what the fuck is so funny about that man? I answered, trying to go along with the teasing. So what? I don't know what they are. I'm not even fucking Spanish. Ramel responded, Neither the weakling And this set the others into bigger fits of laughter. We can't tell you, because we've never heard of them either. This day made them hysterical. They kept playing with me like that until eventually I got on. Human rights, they were coming to visit. That was it. Everyone remained in a good mood sitting along the wall, leaning against the warm bricks which had heated up over the course of the afternoon. I was beginning to really enjoy this human rights caper. I had concentrated hard on absorbing the sun into my body. I only wished that I could be like a lizard and store some of the warmth to stop me from shivering at night. Sometimes it felt like my body wanted to give up and stop heating itself, but at least that moment I was happy, with a full warm belly. I asked, what time is it? To Ramiro, who was the only one in Lagula who hadn't sold his watch to the guards yet. It's full of cracklingo. The guards still hadn't come. No one said anything for several minutes more. I was quite content just resting there until George Velasco came over and crossed beside me and ruined it. A shiver of pure hatred ran down my back and my muscles tensed 
so suddenly that I almost bit through my tongue. Gino gave me a threatening look warning me not to spoil it for everyone. Surprisingly, the feeling lasted only a short time. I took a deep breath like I was meditating and I calmed myself down. I still wanted to punch him, but for the first time in weeks I could control it. It was true that he had made a lot of mistakes, but now that he was in punishment also, I wasn't so sure that he was the one who set me up. I looked at him and he tried to smile at me, but I didn't smile back. I could tell that he was about to say something, but when he saw that expression in my face, he thought better of it. I looked up again and it was at that moment that I saw a La Paz bird darting across the sky. My first one since arriving at the Lagula. I turned back to George to check whether he had seen it also. He smiled at me again. Everyone seen it and was smiling, even Samir. It was the first time I had seen him smile since we had been in solitary. Samir was crazy, but he never smiled. Sami continued smiling at me strangely. Then he stood up and came over to. George Velasco moved over to make space. Just give me a moment and I tell you to Tony. I to drink into some water, you know. They're puffy, puffy. Continue. The inmates usually avoided Samir because he could go from being very serious to completely out of control in the click of his finger. But all the inmates in La Grula, Samir was my best friend. The others didn't know him, like I said. Samir and I had spent a lot of time together and he hadn't told me a lot of things about his childhood and his experiences in prison. He had grown up on the streets stealing cars and spent more of his life inside prison than on the outside. J.O. no longer worried him and solitary confinement was like his second home. Nice day! He said, his bottom lip, more than left, even though he was smiling that day, appeared to be one of his silent ones. Sometimes I worried about what would become of him. I like to think that everyone has a chance to change, but it seemed that Samir was born to a life for crime. I tried to encourage him to use all his crazy energy to do positive things. But it was often hard to talk with him seriously these days. All he wanted to do was party. I guess that he would keep pushing the limits further and further until one day he ran into the fucking wall. And there is nothing that I, nor the best fucking psychiatrist in the world, could do about it. It didn't matter though. Samir was mad and dangerous, but he was my friend. I said to him, what more could you ask for on a day like this? I tried again, poking him into the lips to liven him up. Samir's green blooded, showing his teeth, which were all out of alignment, and one which was black. He responded with a single word, 
Although he used the Portuguese, Sevilla instead of the Spanish. Sevilla. He often did that, especially when he was drunk, so I had trouble understanding him. Samir wasn't talkative that afternoon, but did have that look in his eye that me meant he was up to something. I eventually got him to tell me what it was. He was going to escape. I said, when? He said, I don't know. He shrugged his shoulders. But fucking soon. I said, but how? He pointed upwards and said, easy man, easy. And he pointed upwards with his index finger and back down, whistling for the sound of something falling. He was planning on climbing over the wall or through the wall or something of the sort. Are you loco? He said. It was pure madness and I tried to tell him so. San Pedro was like a castle. It had been built over a century before with walls that must have been at least 50 meters high. If someone managed to get up to the top, he would die or break his legs from the fall to the pavement below. Digging under the wall was impossible since the ground was solid cement, and digging through it was also out of the question since there were actually two walls, an inner and the outer, and each was several meters thick. Although he couldn't tell me how, Samir insisted that he would escape, I knew that he was crazy enough to try. I couldn't prevent him from attempting to carry out his ridiculous plan, but it was worse than that. He wanted me to break out with him. There was no way I was going. I said, forget it, Samir. Samir said, you fucking coward, gringo. Angrily spitting on the concrete just in front of my feet. You're not fucking that, you gringo. You're a fucking coward. Samir persisted, but I kept refusing until he got sick of asking. I didn't care if I was a coward. I wasn't going over that fucking wall. And certainly not with a crazy Brazilian as my escape partner. It was fucking suicide. Finally, he abused me in Portuguese and stoned back inside, banging his fist on each of the cell doors as he went along the corridor, which was probably when he had the idea of having a fiesta. Samir was back in the yard almost immediately, excited about something. He had obviously forgiven me. He said, Thomas, my brother, I need you to get us something good. Moving his hand closer to the face, flickering his lips slightly towards his nose, I shook my head. I can't. I hadn't touched ghost canes since being set up, and I had no desire to. I was too scared, and that's how I got here in the first place. Hopefully I get out of this shit all. To be continued.